Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. Listen now to the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his, up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught up caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the lamb and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to 
understand and in our understanding to trust you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is now the uh, first uh, in a series of sermons uh, I and Pastor Charles are planning to preach through this summer, uh, in which we are going to consider this response, here I am, here I am. In the Hebrew, here I am is hineni, hineni. And hineni is made up of two words. The first part is hine meaning behold, and ani simply means I. So hineni is literally behold, I. And so this is why the older King James Version of the Bible translates uh, here I am as behold, here I am, hineni. Uh, but most translations, like you heard just now, goes with here I am, and sometimes you'll see here am I, uh, to put the I at the, uh, at the end. Now, hine, or behold, is not something we say anymore. No one goes around saying, behold, right? Behold, we are going to do a little word study now. But in the Bible, behold, or hine, it's a very common word. And it's used to draw our attention to something. It's, it's a way of like um, highlighting or maybe bolding the text, like pay a little extra attention here. That's what hine does. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, remember this, but a few years ago, uh, we were at a retreat, and one of the speakers talked about this, and it was, it was quite memorable, so that for a while, our kids used to uh, bring it up when it was appropriate to uh, make this comment. Uh, you might remember that the preacher was speaking about the story of Jacob and how Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and he thought he had married Rachel, right? And, but after the wedding, he went into the tent, and instead of seeing Rachel, the Bible says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah, right? So this, this idea of like you think it's one thing, but then behold, hene, it's something else. And so that's the way the word sometimes gets used, like something going on here, right? The word hene, behold, appears for the first time in Genesis, and God says to Adam and Eve, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the field of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So God is saying, here, listen, look, look, pay attention. This is important. All of this is for you. And then a couple of verses later, we read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so this behold, this hine, calls us to pause, to really look, to be a little more mindful in that moment. And so hineni, based off of this word behold, hine, it's more than I'm here, right? It's like when the teacher's taking roll call and you say here, right? It's, it's more than that. Hineni carries this sense of I'm really here. I'm at full attention and I'm ready to do whatever you want. I am completely available. That's Hineni. It's an unguarded, unreserved, unconditional, unquestioning utterance to be wholly there for the other. That's Hineni. Here I am. It's when you say, I do, at a wedding ceremony. I'm really here for you till death do us part. 
It's when you look into the eyes of your firstborn child after he's been born and you cannot take your eyes off of him and you think to yourself and promise, I'd do anything for this child. It's when you're sitting by your parents' bedside and saying goodbye when she takes her last breath. Kineni, here I am. I'm really here. And as you just heard, Hineni is said by Abraham, not just once, but three times. He says it three times in this passage. Now, our reading today, I know you've all heard this story before. It's very well known. And it's incredibly difficult to interpret. In fact, uh, by Thursday, I was thinking that I should have picked another text to preach on to start off the series and come back to this one at the end of the series because just the amount of materials I have to sift through and read and to try to make sense of this, it's just, it's beyond me. Um, But here we are. In Jewish thought, this passage is known as the binding of Isaac or the akedah, the word for binding, which only appears here in the Bible. And Christians, though, we have called this not the binding of Isaac, but we have generally called it the sacrifice of Isaac. And it is a foundational story for all the New Testament writers. James and the writer of Hebrews, for example, use this story to take opposite positions. James uses it as a uh, way to talk about works. He says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, while the writer of Hebrews takes the opposite position and says that this is evidence of Abraham's great faith, that he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which he, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And in addition to this kind of direct commentary, there are echoes of this story that reverberate throughout the New Testament. In the waters of baptism, God says about Jesus, this is my beloved son. John the baptizer points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans that God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And in the Gospel of John, we hear, for God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, that he gave up his only son. That is in contrast to what happens in our story, that whosoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. The New Testament writers interpret and typologize this story, this near sacrifice of Isaac as a prefigurement of God's plan of redemption fulfilled in the death on the cross of Jesus Christ in a substitutionary atonement for our sins and for our salvation. In Christian history, until about the time of the period of the Enlightenment, this story was interpreted and understood largely positively as a story of Abraham's great faith against all odds and as a foreshadowing of God's provision for our salvation in Jesus Christ. But as you might imagine, the story of a father willing to put a butcher's cleaver to the throat of his son to make an offering to God has been a source not only of commentary, but of confusion, of criticism, and controversy not only among biblical scholars, but among painters and poets and artists of every stripe. Bob Dylan, for example, used this story to kick off his song, Highway 61 Revisited, which I understand is a kind of a metaphorical place where his life and the history of music 
and the human tendency for destruction all come together. The poet Wilfred Owen uses story to express anti-war sentiments to say that we should not sacrifice our children. And Leonard Cohen used this word, hineni, as a refrain of this, this tenuous hope. In one of the last songs he wrote, You Want It Darker. And for the anti-theist, Richard Dawkins, the binding of Isaac is one more example of the poison of religion. In his book, The God Delusion, he writes, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. He's not alone. Many Christians also question the morality of the story in which God calls upon his followers to sacrifice their child. There are a number of ministers and preachers today who refuse to preach on this text because they consider it a repellent text. I'm going to take the opposite tact with you, and I'm going to speak and preach multiple sermons on this text, walking through it with you at least for the next three weeks and possibly for the next eight weeks. Not because I know what it means, but because I don't, and I think we need to sit with it a while, and because it is such an important foundational story to our faith. So I'm going to approach this story with extra fear and trembling, as Kierkegaard said, and this morning, I just want to deal with the first two verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And Abraham said, here I am, Hineni, after these things. This could mean a number of different things. It could be what's happened thus far in Abraham's life, or more probably it's talking about what's happened just before our reading opens. In the last couple of chapters, I want to tell you that Abraham has not been a model of faith. He has lied about Sarah being his wife, pretending she is his sister because he was afraid for his own life and was willing to jeopardize her life. And after that, instead of waiting on God's promises of a son, he had a son through the surrogacy of Hagar and set up all kinds of dysfunction in his household. Then after finally later having a son with Sarah, as promised, he sent Hagar and their son Ishmael out into the wilderness, essentially condemning them to death. And if we pull back on Abraham's life, if we zoom out a little bit, we'll see that this is not isolated. Earlier in his life, Abraham had already lied about Sarah being his wife to protect his own life. And before having a child through surrogacy with Hagar, he had tried to have God make his servant Eleazar his heir, again, rather than waiting upon the promises of God for a son. So after these things, we might question the fitness and the faithfulness of Abraham. They have been mixed at best. God had to repeatedly reproof, remind, and rescue him from his regretful decisions over this time. And so we wonder, after these things, after these things, can he be trusted with the promises of God? Can God really trust him? 
And so it's reasonable that after these things, that God would test Abraham. Now, we are told as listeners that from the very beginning of the story, that this is a test. This is a test. Abraham does not know this, but we know, and we understand that this is a test and that God is not going to have Isaac killed. Many modern people and interpreters are drawn to the potential trauma and the threat to Isaac's life, right? But that is not the primary concern of the biblical writer. The focus is not on Isaac's life. It is on the testing of Abraham. And so we need to begin at least from that position. I know that many of you probably uh, do not like the idea of being tested. But in the scriptures, God regularly tests his people. God tested his people through hunger and thirst in their wanderings through the desert, through foreign oppressors, through false prophets, to discover what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commandments and trust him or not. After Joshua and the Israelites entered the promised land, for example, God does not allow them to have immediate or complete domination over all the peoples or all the land because according to Judges, Judges 2, in order to test Israel, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord or not. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David professed, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have no pleasure in unrighteousness. The Psalms are filled with lamentations of those who are undergoing divinely ordained duress. The entire book of Job is one long test. Prophets like Jeremiah and Zechariah also speak of God's testing who will test the hearts to refine the Israelites as though through fire. In Psalm 26, the psalmist even asks God to test him, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And Jesus himself was tempted, same word as the word testing. He was tempted or tested in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan, which God allowed. Now, in all of this testing, what's important for us to remember is that all this testing is not designed to break us. God's testing is not designed to make us fail. In Star Trek lore, this is not the Kobayashi Maru with a no-win scenario. 1 Corinthians 10 assures us, no temptation, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to humanity. God is faithful and God will not let you be tempted. God will not let you be tested beyond your ability. But with the temptation, with the testing, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. And not only that, 1 Peter tells us to rejoice in our various testings, to rejoice when we are tested so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And James 1 similarly says, Come, uh, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet tests of every kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and lets steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Even in school, Tests, at least in theory, are not designed 
to, well, I guess some tests are designed to flunk you. At least in theory, they're designed as an opportunity for you to show what you know, or at least to measure the progress so you can see what you need to work on and how much progress you've made or how much progress you need to make. Likewise, spiritual testing helps us to grow, to be perfected in our faith. Psalm 11.5 reminds us, God tests the faithful. God tests those who already have faith. And so testing is a sign of God's faith in us and his love for us. Testing helps us to rediscover again and again the firmness of our own resolve as well as the faithfulness of God. And so that's why God tests Abraham and calls his name. And Abraham says, here I am, Hineni. Hineni is the right response when God calls us. Here I am, fully present and ready to do whatever you have to say to me. Some of you may know the novel by uh, Jonathan Foer uh, titled, Here I Am. I actually got the title for this uh, sermon series uh, several years ago after reading that novel. Um, and only now I've gotten to this uh, sermon series, uh, which I'll explain next week. Um, but as the title of the novel suggests, it is a reflection on the meaning of responding to someone with these words, here I am. What does that mean? And here's how one of the characters understands what that means. Abraham didn't say, what do you want? He didn't say, yes. He answered with a statement. Here I am. Whatever God needs or wants, Abraham is wholly present to, for him, without conditions or reservations or need for explanation. Hineni, here I am. This is an utterance of utter faith. It takes courage, a courageous faith, to say, here I am. Because consider what God might ask. Consider what God asked of Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Why would God do this? And it's not that God is commanding him to sacrifice any child. He's calling Abraham to offer up Isaac, who is not only his beloved son, but he is the beloved son of God's promise. He is the one through whom God said, I will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. Why would God take the son away? It makes no sense. Some have said that it's as if God is sadistically taking back all of his promises to Abraham. If we were a part of God's PR team, we would tell God, leave this story out of the Bible. It makes you look really, really bad. It makes you look like every other God in this area who demanded child sacrifices of their worshipers. We thought you were different. This morning, let me just offer this, not as an explanation, but as a first attempt at a reflection. I think we have to understand this command in the context of the larger story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the first time that God speaks to Abraham and calls him. And there God said to Abraham, go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Right? The structure of that command is almost identical to the structure of the command that God gives here in Genesis 22. In both cases, God calls Abraham to go toward an unknown destination. Go to where I will show you. In both cases, God calls for Abraham to forsake his family ties. In the first, he is told to leave behind his family. And in this latest and last command, he's told to cut off his future family. And God calls for this separation from family, and he emphasizes it by this threefold repetition. From your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, your son, your only son, the one you love. And also it's obscured in the English translation, but the verb take, as in take your son, and go, go from your country, it's the same verb in the Hebrew. In fact, it's the only time that this verb appears in the Bible, so you know that this is being intentionally framed in this particular way. The first time and the last time God speaks directly to Abraham, there's an intentionality here. It's to emphasize that what God told Abraham at first, in his first calling, before anything had happened, before Abraham had done anything, the promises that God made to him back then are the same as the promises that God is making with him now at the end of his life. It's the same. The promises of God have not changed. Both times, that call ends with a blessing. As you heard, the ultimate goal of God's testing is not death. It's blessing. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the families, all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. And in fact, it's, it's even more emphatic in this second time that God gives this promise. As we just sang, right? We sang, um, God will come and save you. But as part of the refrain, there's a line, God will surely come and save you, right? Same thing here. In Genesis 12, God says, I will bless you. I will bless you. And now God says, I will surely bless you. I will re- In case you're not sure, I want you to be sure. I will surely bless you to reassure him. As I said, the point of the testing is not to break him, but to bless. But still, before that blessing, comes this impossible command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Notably, this is the first time that the word love appears in the Bible, and it makes the command that much more unimaginable. So again, why would God do this? And how are we to understand this? Now, I want to be clear here that this is not a call, as it's been sometimes interpreted, to sacrifice your children in the name of God or for the ministry. This is not an excuse for all who have claimed that God called them to do something evil. This in no way justifies those who have committed unspeakable acts of terror contrary to God's will in the name of God. The story of this, the, the binding of Isaac is not a justification for any of that. 
Now, according to the philosopher Immanuel Kant, he says that it is impossible for anyone to know that God is speaking to them, even if it truly is God. But he said that the one speaking, if the one who was speaking claimed to be God, went against the moral law, then you know at least that it is definitely not God. You with me, right? Like you can never be sure that the voice you're hearing is the voice of God or a demon or whatever. But he says, you can be sure that it's not God if that voice is telling you to do something against the moral law, like kill your son. Now, I think that's a pretty good general rule of thumb, right? If you hear a voice saying, go kill your child, your first thought should be, that's not God, right? But the problem is, this is God. And this is where, for me, Kierkegaard is helpful because he says that in opposition to Kant, he says that faith requires of us the suspension of even the ethical in obedience to God's word. Faith requires even the suspension of what is ethical or the ethical in obedience to God's word. Now, that is really hard. But ultimately, we owe absolute obedience to God's word, not to our own sensibilities of what is good and what is moral. Now, usually, and especially if we're faithful, those two align. So this story may be about many things, but it is at least about God calling Abraham for an absolute obedience and trust. And so the question I want to kind of leave you with is how can you know, how can you know that it is God and not some demonic spirit or your own imaginations or, you know, that is, that is preying on your mind? It may be that we can never know. I know that's not helpful. And perhaps Abraham only knew for certain after the test, after he had received his son back, after God had reaffirmed his promises. But I want to say this much as a beginning, as a beginning. This command given to Abraham, this impossible command given to Abraham, must be understood as all commandments must be in the context of relationship. All commands must be understood in the context of relationship. For example, let me explain. When my, at, when my wife asks me, David, can you do something for me? I say, Hineni, of course, whatever you want, anything, right? Now, I can say that to her because I know her. I'm not worried about, oh, what if she asks me to do something I don't want to do, right? Of course I think that, but <laughs> in theory, right? Because I know her, because I trust her, when she asks me, can you do something, my reply is or should be, yes. Hineni, here I am. Now, if I'm walking, I don't know, uh, the, the streets of New York City or something, and some total stranger comes up to me and says, hey, buddy, can you do me a favor? I might just pretend not to hear them and just, just keep on walking, right? Because, because I don't know who they are. It's, it's completely different sets of who is giving me 
the request. And so because I know my wife, even if she asks me to do something that is out of character, that seems so far-fetched, I will do it because I know her, right? So for example, um, a few years ago, she told me to go to Costco and buy some slabs of pork belly. Now, most of you know that my wife does not like pork. She does not buy pork. She does not eat pork. She does not cook pork, right? And so that, that is a great sadness in my life. But when I got the call, my first thought was, who is this woman imitating my wife's voice, right? But I know her voice. And so even though this made no sense, I happily went and got it for her. Now, I I don't want to uh, make silly or, or diminish the seriousness of what is being asked of Abraham, but my point simply is that the command given to Abraham as impossible as it is, does not come out of thin air. This is not the first time God has spoken to Abraham. Abraham knows God's voice. This is the voice of God whom Abraham recognizes because he has been walking and talking with God for decades. And Kierkegaard said again, that you stand before God in fear and trembling because you don't know what God might ask of you. You only know who it is that is calling you. And because you know who it is that calls, as a person of faith, you can stand and answer in the only way that is possible, in the only way that is acceptable, and that is, here I am, Hineni. I think there is a hint of this in this passage Because when God tells Abraham, take your son, there is a small untranslated particle in the Hebrew. I don't know why everyone leaves this out, or most everybody leaves this out. But that little particle can be translated as now or as please. So hear that again. Instead of take your son, please take your son. It it softens the command. It indicates that God is well aware of the gravity of what is being asked And it sounds less like a demand than a call to trust. It calls for the offering to be made freely. It is a command only Abraham can understand because Abraham knows God. Because as the Bible tells us elsewhere, Abraham was a friend of God. So when Abraham said, Hineni, I am fully at your command He said it to the voice that he has come to know intimately over his entire life. Only in the context of a deep relationship can such a command be heard. Only in the context of a deep relationship can such a command be given, even if it's only a test. Because like in all relationships, over time, you come to know the voice of the one that is speaking and you come to trust the voice of the one that is speaking. And I think this is our only safeguard, or this is, this, is a, this is a good safeguard for us, that as we come to know God better, we can be more confident that he is the one who is truly speaking to us, and that we can trust that voice because we have come to know him, and we have come to know that he is worthy of our trust and obedience and our reply.
in any. Here I am. Pray with me. I want to just ask all of you, just take, take a moment uh, to pray. Uh, you know, God calls us, God continues to call us to a life of blessing, but also to a life of obedience. And um, I'd just like for all of us uh, to reconsider or to consider uh, rededicating ourselves to God this week, today, that we would come before God once more on our knees and offer these words of surrender and submission. Inani, here I am, fully at your service, Lord. And that we offer these words of commitment to the one whom we have come to know and to trust. We don't know where that calling will take us. We only know the one who is calling. And we have come to know that we can trust this one. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that, like Abraham, the father of faith, that we would be able to say, Behold, here I am, Hineni. Help us to hear your voice, to know your voice, and to trust that voice, and to walk in obedience. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.